This is a special report from the Coronavirus Update. I'm Jim Watkins. In this update, we hear testimony from a group of concerned health experts on the now apparent dangers from COVID-19 vaccines. In part one of our two-part series, we focus on the hows and whys. And part two includes real-life results from the vaccination program and what concerns public health experts about not only the virus, but the suppression of information on the vaccines being kept from the general public, putting people at risk. We now join the COVID-19 conference in Washington, D.C., recorded February 7th, sponsored by Senator Ron Johnson. Dr. Pierre Corey is now speaking in part one of our two-part series. Uh, we know about downtimes and cardiac arrest. Cancer is built around the detection of early screening so you can institute treatment early. We knew in this pandemic that it was critical that we found something effective in early treatment. We also, this is not the first, first coronavirus uh, epidemic. We had SARS-CoV-1. There were drugs that were known to be effective. There were clinicians that were using them. And what we found here is we had an entire health system that was telling us to stay home until our lips turned blue and to try nothing. And what's really sad about it is that the only thing they recommended was Tylenol. And currently, we have well over three dozen compounds, many of them, in fact, the majority that are repurposed. And repurposed means that these are drugs that were approved for another indication and were found to have mechanisms that could be applied to a different disease. So there are plenty of drugs that have been shown to have antiviral properties. And they were very quickly identified around the world and widely used, not in this country. And there's a simple reason for that. We live in a health system that is literally structured with incentives to preserve the market for patented, pricey pharmaceutical products. Uh, repurposed drugs are the enemy of the pharmaceutical industry, and we saw their powers and the levers that they used here. And their suppression of early treatment drugs, like I said, this country needed a, a national vitamin D campaign. Everybody should have had their vitamin D levels checked. We should have had a, a replenishment protocol for everybody. That would have been one of the most simplest and safest and one of the most potent ways to protect ourselves from morbidity and mortality. We did not do that. We, we waited a year into this at least until we rushed through under emergency authorization some pricey uh, uh, antivirals, all the while while suppressing really effective, widely available, very safe track records of medicines like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and fluvoxamine, and I can go on and on. And what I will say, just to remark at how absurd this is, is that 30% of the planet lives in a country where ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine is not only in the national guideline, but it's widely used. But you do not see that in the United States or in any advanced health economies. You look at Europe, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, in all of those advanced health economies where the pharmaceutical industry runs supreme, you see the suppression of early treatment drugs. And I will tell you, you know, I, my colleague is to my side. He was an early advocate proponent of using hydroxychloroquine. We know that drug works in this disease. Had that been adopted at that time, many hundreds of thousands of Americans would still be alive today. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator Johnson. Thanks, Pierre. I just need to emphasize that we knew in 2020, we knew in March of 2020, there were a whole host of effective drugs which could have stopped this pandemic. If we had broadly, widely adopted early treatment, because as Pierre said, the success is early treatment. The treatment now is early treatment. Do not wait until you cannot breathe and go to hospital. In 
March of 2020, we knew about early interventions, early treatments. If this was adopted in March and April of 2020, we would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. We would not be sitting where we are today. We would have abolished this, this pandemic. It's as simple as that. And it's an outrage, a moral, ethical, medical outrage that we were not allowed to treat patients with safe, effective, cheap, repurposed drugs in favor of big pharmaceutical control. And, you know, that's the story. And that's why we are where we are today. So I would ask people to go to our second opinion video and listen to Dr. Merrick's uh, testimony in terms of what his hospital did to him. I do want to ask a question, because you're talking about repurpose. I mean, th there were drugs that were on-label to treat, whether it's uh, clotting or whether it's inflammation, that doctors also weren't allowed to use, correct? I mean, can you quick speak to that? And also, I, I, I don't want to lose the opportunity to talk about remdesivir. Again, this is, I'm, we got time clicking, but... Yeah, so basically what, you know, the FDA themselves promotes the use of off-label drugs. They, in fact, encourage the use of off-label. And off-labeling is just a technical point about advertising. These are FDA-approved drugs, which the FDA on their own website promotes. About 40% of drugs, 40% of drugs used in hospitals are used off-label. Dr. McCulloch uses off-label drugs every single day in his career. That's fine if you're treating heart disease, but suddenly if it's coronavirus, the FDA, the CDC, the NIH do not want you to use an off-label drug because it would compete with big pharma. And in my hospital, I was banned or discouraged from using off-label drugs, which we use every day, methylprednisolone. Vitamin C, my hospital would not allow me to use vitamin C. We're talking about basic safe drugs, and it's an outrage. What they wanted me to use was remdesivir. Where remdesivir we know, and this is not controversial, we know according to the WHO, remdesivir increases your risk of kidney failure 20-fold. Remdesivir will increase your risk of developing renal failure 20-fold. It increases your risk of dying by about 4%. It has no place in medicine, yet the federal government will give hospitals a 20% bonus on the entire hospital bill if you prescribe this toxic medication. So you can see how the hospitals and the healthcare systems are now subservient to industry rather than doing what's best for their patients. And remdesivir is over $3,000 for a course of treatment and they get the 20% kicker. Yes. And, that's so, still, and that's still the standard of care, correct? That's still the standard of care. We know in terms of hospital spending, the hospitals in this country spend more on remdesivir than any other drug. That's how, that's how much money this country spent on a drug which is toxic and ineffective. Pierre, quickly. I just want to say quickly that, you know, there are going to be physicians and others in the medical field who may listen to this. And when they hear us talking about the use of effective repurposed drugs, they're going to be thinking that we're promoting drugs that have been proven to be ineffective. And I have to call that out because it's really important we as a society understand this. But for decades now, the high-impact medical journals have been under the control of the pharmaceutical industry. 
In these last three years, we've seen repeated examples of trials where they manipulated the data and the conduct of the trial to show that their products were effective, and conversely, they manipulated and published trials to try to prove to everyone that safe, effective, repurposed drugs that offered them no profit were ineffective. There is an immense amount of corruption going on in medical publishing and in the conduct of science, and that is why we got here today. That is the root cause of why we are still, we are still discussing these kind of medicines, and I find it disgusting and it is really the proximate cause of immense loss of life. Well, thank you, too. Uh, next, we'll have uh, uh, Dr. Peter McCulloch is an internationally recognized authority on the evaluation of medical evidence concerning contemporary issues in medicine and has published widely. Since the outset of the pandemic, Mr. McCulloch, Dr. McCulloch has been a leader in the medical response to COVID-19 disaster. He has dozens of peer-reviewed publications on the infection and has extensively commented on medical response to the COVID-19 crisis. I don't think there's been a doctor who's been more persecuted. Uh, I mean, just tragically, uh, it's outrageous what they've done to Dr. McCulloch. As an example, they've used Dr. McCulloch and others as an example to control the rest of the medical establishment and create a level of fear that's justified because of what they've done to Dr. McCulloch. Now, I've given you like 10 minutes and I've asked uh, Dr. McCulloch to, to lead the discussion, uh, opened up a little bit with uh, uh, Dr. Cole talking about could the vaccine possibly driven the vari variants, natural immunity, and asymptomatic spread. So, Dr. McCulloch. Thank you, Senator. Uh, can I ask uh, Liz if I change positions with Paul Alexander? We're going to have Paul step in for this. Thank you very much. I'm trained as an internist, a cardiologist, and epidemiologist, and I have been completely focused on this crisis since the outset. And uh, when I testified here in the U.S. Senate November 19th of 2020, uh, we had just heard about the COVID-19 vaccines by press release. And myself, Dr. Risch, and Dr. Freed were asked by Senator Johnson, do we have any comments on the vaccine? The answer is no, we had no comments because the vaccine results were presented by press release. And we held back and carefully looked at the data. America had 250,000 deaths due to COVID-19 before the vaccines. Now our CDC says that 10% of those deaths are due to adjudicated COVID-19 pneumonia and its consequences. And that 90% are in fact the infection, but there are contributors. There are other medical problems, two, three, or four medical problems, uh, being elderly, as Dr. Risch points out, obesity, diabetes, heart and lung disease, kidney disease, frailty. So we knew when we were dealing with the first waves of the outbreak, the original Wuhan strain, the ancestral strain, and then our very first big variant wave, Alpha, that came through before the vaccines were exposed in our population, before they were introduced. We knew what we were dealing with at that time, and as Dr. Merrick and Corey pointed out, early treatment was being advanced, and that was the news that America needed to hear, that we could treat patients and get them through the pandemic survey was completed and published this year by Verdkirk and colleagues showing the only Americans who are hospitalized and died were those who received no treatment. 
almost 201. Even if someone had received early treatment and they were hospitalized, they were going to survive because they had enough pre-hospital treatment. But since the vaccines have been introduced, we've still have been keeping track of hospitalizations and deaths. And we now, since mass vaccination has started, we have amassed 750,000 deaths plus in the United States. And the hospitalizations run 10 to 1. Now, fortunately, the virus has mutated and has become far less invasive, far less deadly. And we know now today that people are getting second and third infections. And to each person, the second and third and fourth infections become progressively more mild. And that's good news. But my question is for Dr. Alexander, who has spent his whole life studying evidence-based medicine and epidemiology and epidemiologic phenomenon, is mass vaccination making this worse? Is it driving variants? Well, <clears throat> Dr. McCullough, first of all, thanks to Senator Johnson and uh, the Senate, etc., for us here and the company that I'm in. Um, I follow Dr. M Dr. Rich, Dr. Corey, Dr. Marek, etc., and uh, it's tremendous to have this chance. So, the reality is that um, we have studies right now by Subamanian, Kemp, BD, etc., that shows us that the countries in the world that mass vaccinated across all age groups very rapidly, and that's the key, the rapid mass vaccination, those are the nations that have shown us now elevated infections, cases, hospitalizations, ICU, and death. And the data now is very stable and clear that something has happened with these particular gene injections. Some call them vaccines. We continue to call them gene injections. That when you vaccinate a population, you are going to, you're trying to stimulate adaptive immunity. And that means neutralizing antibodies that will eliminate the virus. So you want to stop infection, you want to stop replication, you want to stop transmission. But rapidly we go to see negative efficacy with these Pfizer and Moderna vaccines particularly, where we are seeing that those who are vaccinated are becoming infected and reinfected repeatedly. So much so that when you use these vaccines now, they are placing the pathogen and as Dr. Cole said earlier, we are at BA4, BA5, subvariant clades. When you place these uh, variants under pressure, natural selection will operate and will select for more infectious variants, so much so that if you kept this bivalent program going, the new booster, you are going to keep this pandemic going for many, many more years. In other words, this vaccine rollout, the way it has been done and the way it is continuing, will keep invariant, variants emerging, one variant after the next, and they're going to be more infectious, and uh, there is a concern among virologists that it could actually could become more potential, lethal and virulent. So yes, um, I have no question, when you look at the data, that the vaccination program, the mass vaccination, into a pandemic whilst there's tremendous infectious pressure. You see, that is the issue that we, that, 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 that those who have conducted this vaccination program have made a catastrophic mistake. You do not load your weapon whilst the enemy is on the battlefield. 
you vaccinate outside of season. We have vaccinated while this virus is circulating. These vaccines cannot work, will not work. They will fail and are failing. So let me quick ask a question. I've put up behind me a chart that I prepared uh, in, I think, September, October of 2021. Uh, this is when the president was coming out saying this is a pandemic of the unvaxxed, when we were still getting information from Public Health England showing that 63% of their Delta deaths, which was the main variant back then, were from fully vaxxed individuals. But I created this chart, which the, the blue bars are the number of new cases. Yes. And so you can see the pandemic you know, rise toward the tail end of 2020, uh, peak early 2021, then start falling. Yes. So kind, kind of coincidentally with the rollout of the vaccine. Now, again, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I'm asking the epidemiologist. I mean, I would, I would expect that with or without the vaccine, uh, it, it was kind of looking like this pandemic was burning itself out. And certainly if the vaccines would have worked, wouldn't have we assumed that the, you, know, you would have just had a gradual decline into extinction yes. of, of the pandemic, but that's not what happened. Yeah. So, Senator, in December 10th, 2021, the CDC reported to America that big outbreak, the Omicron outbreak, that was occurring right into mass vaccination, 79% of people with Omicron were fully vaccinated. Yeah, and, and then I'll close by saying, you can only tame a pandemic. You can only get to the end if you get to population herd immunity, but you must cut the chain of transmission. And your graph was a seminal graph to us, because if you look at it, if you look at the down slope, had we not mass vaccinated, it is highly probable that we'd have gotten the population herd immunity across the United States, and that vaccine caused a catastrophic problem right there. Well, that's certainly a theory. So this is a good setup now as we move to the next phase of this, and we're pretty much on time. We're right on time. Thank you. Um, our next speaker will be uh, Dr. Robert Malone. He's an internationally recognized virologist and immunologist, clinical research and regulatory affairs expert, U.S. federal contract proposal and project manager and the original inventor of mRNA delivery and vaccination as a technology, DNA vaccination and multiple non-viral DNA and RNA, mRNA platform delivery technologies. That's a mouthful. I've asked Dr. Malone to just give us the history of the mRNA technology development. Why was it developed? Let's, let's make some sense of this, uh, and then we'll set up for further discussion about the vaccine. So Dr. Malone. Thank you, Senator. I'll try to be brief. Uh, the <clears throat> original intention of the technology as it was envisioned circa 89-90 was uh, to use mRNA as a drug with the entry a little application for vaccination. It was known very early on that uh, RNA delivery using these positively charged fats in animals was relatively inefficient. And uh, the thesis was that mRNA has a, natural mRNA has a very short half-life. And so if there were adverse events, toxicity associated with the treatment, that would rapidly fade because of the degradation of the mRNA. In terms of the logic for um, developing a product like this, uh, the um, strongest uh, justification that I'm aware of within the government is that uh, the cycle time for building vaccines is far too long, up to a decade per product, 
And um, a good fact is that we're currently on track in the Department of Defense to have vaccines for all of the bioweapons deployed up until the end of World War II by 2050 if all the schedules stay on track. So a full century after the threat manifested. Clearly we need a technology that's more efficient. And the logic underpinning this briefly is that it would be very nice to have a technology platform that could go direct from genetic sequence to product in a very simple, short loop to protect the population. I believe that is the underlying thesis, uh, the reason why the government has pushed this so hard. Um, that's not a justification for the shortcuts they've taken. So that's my brief understanding of uh, the background of the source of the technology and uh, the logic for why it has been aggressively developed um, largely by our intelligence community. Over. Well, just real quick, because in yesterday's discussion, you were talking about the difference between, as this was originally conceived as, I guess, biologic RNA versus now this is synthetic. And there, there's a difference there. Can you explain that? So about a decade after that original work that was done at the Salk Institute in Vical, um, a group, uh, Carrico and Weissman at UPenn came along and attempted to address one of the key problems with the technology, which is that it is very inflammatory, which is kind of a big word saying it's toxic. And uh, they came up with a modification using a newly discovered aspect of molecular biology. That is the substitution of a modified U. RNA contains four bases, AUGC, and a modified U called pseudouridine, which reduces inflammation also causes the RNA to last for a very long time and has a variety of other effects on the biology of the RNA that are still being understood. And so in the original embodiment, we had RNA that would potentially last for a few hours. Um, and that was what was taught to physicians is the um, half-life or lifespan of these injectable products. Um, but with the pseudouridine incorporation with this modification of Carrico and Weissman, we now have clear documentation the product lasts for 60 days or more in human bodies after injection, which has all kinds of implications, including um, that we really have to extend the window of time where we assess potential risk or toxicity associated with the treatment rather than um, inferring that it just is in the body for a short period of time and degrades. I hope I've answered your question. You, you did, and I, let's put a, f a finer point on that. So we were told that this injection would stay in the arm muscle, and it would quickly produce a little spike protein that the body would create, create antibodies for, and that mRNA would degrade, and all would be well. And there wouldn't be any kind of long-term impact. But it was encapsulated in a nanoparticle that was designed to permeate difficult to permeate barriers. So it biodistributed all over the body. We can talk about that later. And the mRNA lasts a whole lot longer than anybody was told. And in particular, technical challenges. And it, <laughs> And in particular, much longer than physicians and other healthcare providers were told by the pharmaceutical industry and the U.S. government, including HHS. Over. Okay, thank you. So I want to call up to the table uh, Dr. Janice Jancy Lindsay. Oh, 
you're there. You weren't there last time we looked. Um, Dr. Lindsay is a PhD, uh, is the Director of Toxicology and Molecular Biology for Toxicology Support Services, LLC. She holds a doctorate in the Biochemistry and Molecular Biology from the University of Texas Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences, Houston MD Anderson Cancer Center. Her focus on COVID-19 has been on the molecular pathways that may be involved in reproductive harms and uh, co coagulate pathies caused on, by the genetic vaccines and their expedient, whatever. These are way too big of words for me. <laughs> as well as understanding the molecular mechanisms behind the various treatments of SARS-CoV-2. Sorry, I butchered that. Uh, I asked Dr. Lindsay to really address the potential toxicities of, uh, of the vaccine and, and you know how, how these things work. And I think Dr. Malone may chime in. Dr. Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me, Senator Johnson. I very much appreciate it, as well as being in the company of all these amazing and remarkable scientists and physicians and attorneys. Uh, I, I very much appreciate your work. Uh, so when we think about toxicology and we think about the toxicology of these vaccines, we have to take into consideration all of the parts of the vaccines, the lipid nanoparticle portion, the peg portion, the uh, methylsuduridine in the mRNA, which has, allows it to be very stable and persist in the body, which uh, Dr. Cole will go over in a little bit. And um, also the way that, uh, that it is distributed throughout the body. So that's called pharmacokinetics. Where does it go? We were told initially that it would just stay in the arm, but it does not. It ends up being biodistributed throughout the entire body for both Moderna and Pfizer. Now with Moderna, we have the caveat that it is not in the kidney, but it's everywhere else in all the tissues examined. With Pfizer, it really went to every tissue that they examined. Now what are those tissues? The brain, the spleen, the endocrine glands, the bone marrow, the blood, preferentially the ovaries and the testes. Now what happens when gene therapies get to the ovaries and the testes? Well, we just don't know because unfortunately it hasn't been adequately studied. Before I jump into that, again though, I'd like to say that there are many toxicities that are potentiated by these genetic vaccines. Uh, the spike protein can cause endothelial cell damage. This will be gone into detail a little bit later. Massive clotting. I spoke to the CDC ACIP committee about the thromb <clears throat> thrombotic potential of these vaccines, as well as their potential to cause immense reproductive harm and potentially sterilize an entire generation. I also spoke about the potential for immune escape, which Dr. Paul Alexander, uh, Alexander just covered. Uh, these genetic vaccines, this type of platform has never been adequately studied. It was not adequately studied. There is no way that we can say at this point that they are safe nor effective. The real thing that we have to worry about right now is what are we potentially putting into the next generation? Since the 2000s, we've remarked on how we need to be careful that if we use gene therapies, that they are not passed on to subsequent generations. It is brought up again and again and again. There are excellent articles on it, one by Dr. Nancy King, one by Do <coughs> uh, Dr. Susan Epstein of the FDA, the Recombinant uh, DNA Advisory Board. They both cautioned that if gene therapies got to the testes, which many do, that they could be passed on to next generations as inadvertent gene transfer. They both said, we have to study this, we must study this. It was never studied. 
The truth is that Dr. Corrado Spadafora brought forth that if you just incubate sperm with DNA, which, is, which can be reverse transcribed by transcriptases present, that you can pass that on extra chromosomally without even having to integrate it. That means two ways to pass these on and potentially cause harm. This has not been looked into and it must be looked into. It is absolutely irresponsible to continue any of these shots in our reproductive age kids or younger. Anybody that could possibly pass these on without investigating this and I am demanding now that this be investigated. Thank you, Dr. Lindsay. One, one thing came up yesterday was the fact that this approval process went through approval process went through the vaccine group at the FDA versus the gene therapy group. I can't remember who made that point. Was that you, Dr. Wiseman? Can you just kind of again quickly, briefly, you'll get another chance to talk talk about the difference there and, and as a result, what what was missed in terms of just an overall analysis? Um, yeah, thank you, Senator, and thank you for inviting me once again to this booster second opinion. Um, the, yes. As Dr. Malone has pointed out several times, FDA sort of has different checklists. They have the vaccine checklist and they have another checklist called the, the cell and gene therapy checklist. And for reasons known best to FDA, they decided to use the vaccine checklist. On the gene therapy checklist, it includes, uh, and, and these vaccines do meet the biological definition of gene therapy, it includes a five to 15 year follow-up, particularly for cancers, autoimmune diseases, and, uh, and other uh, uh, neurological and other diseases. Um, to the best that we can determine publicly, FDA have not consulted that part of their uh, structure that deals with cell therapy, uh, cell and gene therapy uh, products. So we haven't looked at cancers specifically, and I'll be talking about this a little later. In the package insert, it specifically says that they did not conduct cancer studies, genotoxic studies. They did not conduct them. Uh, to Dr. Lindsay's point about the biodistribution, it, it, it says specifically in other documents that Pfizer did not conduct certain types of studies to look at track where the mRNA and the spike protein goes. They were asked specifically this question at an FDA panel meeting in, uh, in June, and the Pfizer response was, well, this is an academic question. It's not very important. Um, any drug, and I'd like to hear Dr. Gortler's uh, answer to this question, any drug that goes through the FDA, it is a fundamental uh, piece of information that we have to know where that drug goes, how long it goes there, wh where does it go, where does it, how does it get um, eliminated from the body. That is a fundamental question, and yet Pfizer walks away from it. This is asked Dr. Gortler, yes or no? Okay, thank you. Just, just real quick, they changed the definition of vaccine Correct? Who, who wants quick speak to that? I mean, quickly. Who, who can? Dr. Cole? Uh, thank you, Senator. Yes, and, and this was the sleight of hand. So, societally, we have this construct, vaccine. And most people in their minds historically think vaccine. Oh, gosh, we've got our childhood vaccines, military vaccines, etc. Vaccine, vaccine. To change the term for injecting a gene into the body that's never been used uh, ever before, this platform, a lipid nanoparticle plus a gene, is not a vaccine. It is a mechanism to make your body a factory for a foreign protein. The human cells in the human body are meant to make human proteins. So this is a, 
a grand experiment to leap forward, making your body a factory for a foreign and now known to be toxic protein. They changed it, and it was a sleight of hand in the, in the CDC's definition of a vaccine, something that will, quote, stimulate the immune response. Well, that would include dirt. That would include vitamin D. That would include licking the kitty cat, you know, whatever. That stimulates an immune response. So they, they made it such a broad definition compared to preventing or, or causing immunity to prevent you acquiring that disease in the future. It was a, a subtle word game. David, do you have the exact definition where it went from to where, what it became? Well, I, uh, Ryan, I think that was a very eloquent explanation. Um, but but I, 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 wanna, I wanted to distill it down to like the core. I know I haven't been introduced myself yet. We have the inventor of mRNA vaccines sitting sitting right to my right here. Robert, is this vaccine or is it a gene therapy? As I've said repeatedly, it came out of a gene therapy research program. These and the adenoviral vectors are absolutely gene therapy technology applied for the purpose of eliciting an immune response. Okay. I don't care what the FDA says. There's your answer right there. Okay, thanks. Well, let's, let's move on. Uh, we're staying pretty good on time. I appreciate that. So now I'm going to have uh, Dr. Me Peter McCulloch lead, lead a uh, uh, discussion on how the vaccine actually works. And Dr. McCulloch, I'll ask you to call on people, and I'll, you can do the introductions as you call on them. Virtually every American has taken a vaccine in the course of their life. The compliance with the CDC vaccine schedule is nearly 100%. It's, uh, there are always some who, uh, for a variety of reasons, elect not to take vaccines, and, and uh, that's within their right and their purview to do that. Um, it's important to know that the vaccines fall into categories of an antigen-based vaccine, a, a killed virus vaccine, a live attenuated viral vaccine, and then there's some antigen-based vaccines for uh, bacterial uh, diseases as well. The COVID-19 vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna being messenger RNA, Janssen being adenoviral DNA, and now the Novavax vaccine being an antigen of the spike protein, none of them provide any evidence of immunity in the nose where the virus is carried and transmitted. Papers by Chow, by Acharian, uh, Rhymerisma, and Acorsi measured the PCR uh, viral load determined from PCR in those who have taken the vaccines and those who didn't, and there was no difference. These vaccines have no support for reducing transmission of the infection. Their only hope was to reduce the risks of severe disease. There has been no randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial that has ever shown any one of these COVID-19 vaccines reduce hospitalization and death as a primary endpoint. That's the standard that we hold manufacturers to in clinical trials. The current consent form says the only benefit of taking a COVID-19 vaccine Specifically, it says that the vaccines have been, past tense, shown to reduce COVID-19 infection, the incidence of infection, period. I'll pass it off to David Wiseman. How do these vaccines work? So let's introduce Dr. Wiseman. Thank you. 
Dr. Weissman is a PhD research bioscientist with a background in pharmacy, pharmacology, immunology, and experimental pathology. He was one of the top 66 research scientists at Johnson & Johnson, where he headed up the research and development program overseeing clinical and international clinical research, pharmacovigilance, as well as submissions to the FDA for products uh, to prevent post-surgical adhesions. Since 1996, he's run his own uh, research and development consulting firm, helping companies develop drugs, devices, and biologics. Dr. Wiseman. Thank you once again, uh, Senator. How do they work? Um, well, I, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to be sitting to the right of the person who was probably much better qualified to give that answer. Um, so with your permission, sir. Um, these, uh, these vaccines contain a genetic sequence uh, and to use CDC's words that, could, that instruct your body how to, how to make this thing called the spike protein that we've heard about. The idea behind them is that the spike protein is produced in your body, as we've learned, in an uncontrolled, undefined way, but the spike protein is supposedly expressed, put on the surface, on the outside of your cells, so that your immune system can then recognize it as being foreign and mount an immune response. That's the simple explanation. So when the, when the spike protein from the vaccines is expressed on the cell surface and the body recognizes that as not being a natural protein, what happens? Well, the, the, immune, the, immune, system, uh, the immune system kicks in. There's, there's, a, there's a complex system of how uh, certain cells in the, in the immune system uh, pick up that spike protein, take them to certain places, lymph, uh, lymph nodes, uh, and so on, where, uh, where the mechanism goes forth, where lymphocytes, uh, B cells, T cells uh, are activated to start producing antibodies in the case of B cells, uh, another kind of response, a cellular response in the, in the form of T cells, as well as a memory response that ena enables the body to recall that it saw this antigen uh, uh, much after the event, so that if you get exposed to the same antigen uh, down the road, uh, you should be able to respond to it. Does the body destroy the cell that this spike protein is, is expressed from? Yeah, yes, uh, it, yes, it would, it, would destroy the, it would destroy that cell. Uh, the, the problem is if that spike protein is expressed in lots of places, you might set up a situation where you can get an autoimmune type of response, and that's a complex uh, question, but it, will have, it would have to destroy in a sort of a suicide manner, if you will, cells that, 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 that it believes contain the, contain the virus, because the ones that have the, uh, the, the, the spike protein, the, cell, the body assumes that it, it contains the virus, so, so it would so destroy again, so the I'm going to use my layman prerogative here. So a standard vaccine sets up the body to be able to recognize a pathogen, a virus or whatever, and then when that pathogen appears in the body, not, not attached to a cell, but, you know, the body response and tries to kill it in the bloodstream or in the nasal passages. This is different in that the, the body is, the cells are actually producing the pathogen, the thing that's toxic, and so the body's immune response goes and attacks those cells, okay. body cells. Okay, so the pathogen is... You know, all over the body. I mean, is, am I getting that right? Uh, uh, look, uh, we're getting very deep. I don't know how deep you want to go, Senator, so I'm going to let... I'm sure Dr. Malone has given this talk much more than I have, and I would love him to give okay. that explanation. I just want to mention that uh, vaccines as a category is very broad, and uh, live attenuated vaccines are absolutely part of the portfolio, and live attenuated vaccines, which is to say a weakened virus, 
does exactly the same thing. It causes your cells to manufacture a viral protein or a group of viral proteins, and those cells do get attacked and they do elicit an immune response. The short version of how this technology works is that it mimics a natural infection in a way, but it only produces a small part of the virus, um, and that has both a strength and a weakness. You don't have replicating viruses if you were infecting a, a patient with a live attenuated yellow fever vaccine or smallpox vaccine. But um, because you only express, in this case, one protein, you get a very narrow, focused immune response, which is what gives rise to the problem that Paul was talking about. Over. So again, you're, as I've read about it, your body kind of missets its immune reaction to this because it's only spike protein rather than the entire coronavirus, and that sets up potentially the, the spread of variants that the body's not particularly good at attacking, correct? Is that in layman's terms describing this? Yeah, and where to tie this in, natural immunity produces a broad-based immune response against all the proteins. This very narrowly defined vaccine product only produces immune response against one highly immunogenic protein, which we have learned the virus can rapidly evolve to escape that type. And if anybody is confused about that, we have the clear evidence that all of the monoclonal antibodies now have been withdrawn against Spike because they're no longer working. The virus has escaped them. Over. The, the best analogy I heard in that layman's analogy is, you know, the, this vaccine allows your immune system to recognize the nose, mm -hmm. and natural immunity allows your immune system to recognize what? the entire face. I think, that, uh, well, I there's a... You know, well, I just wanted to say quickly in about two sentences, and I think Ryan also is an expert in this. That brings up the issue of the concept of the original antigenic sin, which, whether vaccine or from uh, infection exposure, the first prime, the initial primary exposure that your immune system has uh, imprints or fixates on that particular pathogen lifelong, and uh, so that uh, the antibodies, etc., that I recall is that original prime. And the issue with the vaccine is because it induces you to produce just that spike protein, that's the only look that your immune system has versus natural exposure where your immune system sees the entire viral ball, all of the surface proteins, the glycans, the sugars, including the spike, the nucleocapsid, membrane protein, envelope protein, so that when that virus comes again with natural exposure, your immune system will have an immunological memory that's robust, bulletproof, and lifelong. It's not, the natural immunity uh, is fully in the nasopharynx, where IgA, mucosal immunity, cytotoxic T cells, and the natural immunity conferred is thorough compared to the, the immunity conferred by a vaccine, which is very narrow and very short in duration. Yeah, I mean, we're covering a lot of ground, but very briefly, the big, the big difference between, the, between a conventional vaccine that, that Robert is describing is that if you're exposed to a pathogen, the disease-causing thing, the body sees that, that foreign thing with its recognition things, we'll call them spike proteins, and it will go after that. 
if, you, if your whole body has now been coerced and hijacked to produce uh, these spike proteins, when you, amount, uh, when you mount an immune response, it thinks that those cells may be the pathogen. And so that's the big difference here. When you have a, a normal kind of conventional vaccine, it's only in one limited, few limited places, and, 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 the, and the antigen is confined to that area. And that's the, that's the difference that we have to understand. Uncontrolled production of antigen throughout the body. That is the key here that we have to understand. Okay, we're doing a very good job of staying on time here, and we've got to stay on time. Uh, next, I want to move to uh, just basically the, the manufacturing regulatory standards that were lacks at best. And to do that, I, I want to turn to Dr. David Gortler. He's a scholar at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., where his work focuses on FDA oversight and accountability. His FDA oversight position is the only one of its kind in any think tank. Dr. Gortler is, a, is trained as both a pharmacologist and pharmacist. He is a former Pfizer investigational medicine research scientist who was later appointed as a professor of pharmacology and biotechnology at the Yale University School of Medicine. We also served as a faculty appointee at Yale's Center of Bioethics, and thanks for having the resume. Some things I could pronounce. But get Thank it close so we can hear you. Thank you, Senator. Thank you for the kind introduction. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I do work at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. I work under former HHS executive Roger Severino. Um, <coughs> we, uh, our job there is to have oversight and accountability for uh, HHS and the FDA. Um, that should be a pretty easy job under the normal run of things, but this is far from the normal run of things. Normally, if the FDA followed what it's supposed to, followed scientific evidence and did what it's supposed to do, there'd be very little accountability and oversight work for me to do. This position that I have is the first of its kind for, for the exact reason that the FDA is, is is not doing what it's supposed to do. I'm disheartened to, to see what's going on with, with these vaccines or gene therapy as I constantly go back and forth for labeling one or the other. But even more upsetting is that I, I, I can't believe that the FDA, where I, I've, I've worked as a career medical officer, but I'm, I'm the only person who's, out of the 20,000 employees, or so at the FDA of physicians, pharmacists, nurses, public health officials that, that's here speaking out about this. I, I, I don't understand. These people took oaths and I, I don't understand why other people aren't speaking out. In January of 2020, when we were in, still in the throes of a pandemic which was, which was getting worse, um, th that, that morning I, I was working as the senior advisor to the FDA commissioner on drug safety and FDA science policy. I, I, I was fired by the administration and my position was never replaced. In fact, the FDA commissioner's position was not replaced for an entire year. What I don't understand is, at this point is, and it's, it seems to be a bit of theater, is that there have been over 13 billion doses of this vaccine that's that's been given worldwide and there hasn't been a single labeling change to the vaccine because there isn't a vaccine label and dr rihanna moon will come here later on and she's going to show you a little bit of theater she's going to show you what the package insert for this vaccine looks like i i, I don't understand how 
my, my physician colleagues, and especially my pharmacist colleagues, who, uh, who are working uh, and, and, and giving this vaccine, are still continuing to do so when they don't know anything about it. And, and we'll, we'll look at the package insert a, 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 little, a little later on. But if we had a package insert, now would be the time for the package insert to be updated. It should be updated to reflect the lack of safety, the lack of efficacy, and specifically there need to be warnings about myocarditis. And others will speak of the same, of exactly what has borne out as adverse events. I want to talk a little bit about manufacturing and the regulatory standards for this compound. And I also want, I would like it if both physicians and pharmacists who are watching this could pay particular attention to, to, to what I'm saying. Because we don't know what's in, in, in this vaccine in particular. We know what's supposed to be in there, but we don't know exactly what the quality control is. We don't know exactly, we know how much, how much to dose people, whether it's 0.3 milligrams or 0.5 milligrams, or where we're, we're giving, 100, we're giving 30 microliters or 100 microliters of the vaccine. But what, what, what's the mass? People don't know. What, what's the load? What's the number of cells that are in these vaccines? Nobody knows. What's the half-life? Nobody knows. I, I don't understand how in good conscience we can still be giving these vaccines at this point for the COVID-19, named after 2019, for a strain of the vaccine that no longer exists. And because there have been safety issues with this, even when we're giving the bivalent vaccine, we're still giving the original vaccine as part of that bivalent vaccine, which has its own separate safety issues. As, as, as Peter, Dr. McCullough will talk about later on, and everyone at this table will talk about their personal experience and what the data has borne out. Thank you, David. Next, I want to turn to uh, Dale Bigtree, who I asked to put together a video, if uh, one of you could just quick give up your seat. Um, somebody? Everyone. I, guess, I guess Paul. Uh, Dale put together a quick little video clip that I think sort of encapsulates what we've been told. And of course, what we all assumed is happening is uh, Dr. Gortler was talking about didn't happen. But Dale, why don't you uh, introduce the video? Well, we, we live in a time where we're discussing misinformation. Almost everybody at this table has been claimed to be spreading misinformation. I just wanted to show what we were actually seeing in the news as the official information and sort of just bring up a question that brought about as a journalist looking into this. So we can play the video. Go right ahead. Everyone, everyone who takes the vaccine is not just protecting themselves, but reducing their transmission. Uh, to other people and allowing society to get back to normal. We can kind of almost see the end. We're, we're vaccinating so very fast. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that, that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick. Getting vaccinated and getting a booster shot when eligible can save your life and protect you and your family and friends from getting seriously ill and spreading infection. What do you think the probability is? 80%? Personally, I think it's 100%. I think that there's a reduction and transmission. Right. Essentially, vaccines block you from getting and giving um, the virus. If enough people get vaccinated, it actually halts transmission. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. We have all the vaccines we need. 
We just need our people to take it. A, for their own protection, for the protection of their family, but also to break the chain of transmission. You want to be a dead end to the virus. So when the virus gets to you, you stop it. You don't allow it to use you as the stepping stone to the next person. Now we know that the vaccines work well enough that the virus stops with every vaccinated person. A vaccinated person gets exposed to the virus. The virus does not infect them. The virus cannot then use that person to go anywhere else. It cannot use a vaccinated person as a host to go get more people. That means the vaccines will get us to the end of this. I just want to point out that obviously we haven't gotten to the end of this. And, you know, when those statements were being made as a journalist, I looked at the emergency use authorization for the vaccine and wanted to see had they achieved the stopping transmission, which is our definition of a vaccine. For most lay people, which is all I am, I'm not a medical uh, expert, but uh, we're supposed to be able to stop the infection, therefore we can create herd immunity. But when we looked at the emergency use authorization, which is right on the screen, if you look what it says under transmission, this is what was known the moment they were making those statements. Can I have the next slide, please? What was known was that the data are um, not there, limited to assess the effects of the vaccine against transmission of SARS-CoV-2. They had no idea. They had no idea if it would stop the infection, yet they were making those statements on the news. And then just a few weeks ago at the EU, they were having hearings that are very important right now. They, they asked uh, Borla, the head of Pfizer, to come in. He sent someone just underneath him. This is what she had to say when asked about testing of transmission in the trials for the vaccine. I think you'll find this interesting. Was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping humanization before um, it entered the market? No. Uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. And from that point of view, we had to do everything at risk. I just want to finish up this point by saying that, you know, now the EU is looking at suing to get their money back because of the fraud over this product. We were told that this would stop transmission, and now we find out from the heads of Pfizer that they were never even testing inside the trials whether or not it could stop transmission. Let's be perfectly clear. I come from Hollywood. You can't get on a film set or on a television set without being a PCR tested every single day. We had children in this country that couldn't go into kindergarten without being PCR tested every day. Everyone that works in the workforce that had to go in office needed to be PCR tested each every day or maybe at least once a week. And we are finding now that if you didn't like being PCR tested, the only place you were safe to not be tested on whether you could be transmitting the virus was in the trials for Moderna and for Pfizer where they're supposed to be proving they can stop transmission. I think this is one of the most outrageous discoveries and it shows how unbelievably bad these trials, I think, actually were. Thank you very much for your time, Senator Johnson. Appreciate it. Thank you, Del. Before we move on to uh, a discussion of what tests weren't undertaken, uh, I do want to point out the fact that, that for, I think, the fourth time I invited you know, heads of these or their best representative of the agencies, of the 
pharma, big pharma companies, uh, Dr. Walensky, Dr. Tabak, uh, Dr. Burla, Dr. Sahin, uh, Stephanie Bansell, Dr. Ja, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Califf, Dr. Marks, Dr. Shimabukuro. Now, I understand their reluctance not to step into a public forum, but you know, we had an all-day private event, private meeting, closed door, no press, no recordings. That had been the perfect opportunity here in D.C. where we had these eminently qualified doctors, medical researchers that I think everybody recognizes know their stuff. That had been the perfect opportunity for them to at least send representatives to make their case. They have steadfastly refused to discuss and debate the second opinion. I find that shameful. But right now I want to continue the discussion. I'll have uh, Dr. McCulloch lead this. Uh, again, the regulatory shortfalls, uh, what tests we didn't take. That, let's face it, you know, w one of the victims or, or one of the tragedies of this is we have just, because of the FDA, their own actions, CDC, the public, I've certainly lost confidence in them because we just assumed they were doing all these things. We just assumed, I mean, you know, it was about drug safety. You know, the CDC was about gathering information and providing truthful, honest, transparent information to the public. They haven't done that. And so I, I want a discussion now in terms of what should have they done that they didn't do. And I'll have Dr. McCulloch lead that discussion. I'll just start from the clinical perspective. When new products are tested in randomized prospective placebo-controlled trials, they have data safety monitoring boards, uh, critical event committees, and they all are approved by human ethics committees or institutional review boards. That was done for the registrational trials of the COVID-19 vaccines, which were three months in duration. But when the COVID-19 vaccines were introduced into the U.S. population under the emergency use authorization, Americas saw the consent form, which said the vaccines are still investigational or experimental because it was unknown what was going to happen to them in terms of safety. In fact, uh, you've heard today that people were asked to participate in the V-SAFE system and actually enter in what happened to them. Uh, doctors, nurses, and others were uh, uh, made aware that they should enter data into the VAERS system. Uh, that's, a, that's mainly a clinical reporting system for us, and that was done. But what was not done is having a structure of administering a vaccine program. Our FDA, which should be the safety watchdog for America, to protect America from drug safety issues, was actually positioned with the CDC, which is supposed to do outbreak investigation, in vitro diagnostics and data analytics. Those two regulatory bodies were put to one as the sponsors of the vaccine program. So our vaccine program had no policing. It had no independent evaluation of safety events once the vaccines rolled out. To make matters worse, our FDA commissioned no safety report. There was no month-by-month -month report on what was going on with the vaccines uh, in American bodies, and there was no attempt for risk mitigation, meaning every drug introduced will have some safety issue. It always does. The FDA always asks manufacturers, the sponsors, doctors using the products 
to participate in risk evaluation and management. That is to do everything we can to be sure the product is safe. Maybe it's the wrong dose, or maybe there's certain patients with medical conditions that just can't tolerate the vaccines. There was no guidance given to doctors when someone has a reaction on the first shot, should they get the second shot or should they not? What about uh, uh, boosters? And then to carry this uh, fully forward to the bivalent boosters, human studies were skipped altogether. This has never been done in the history of our country to skip human studies altogether and just plunge into a program of administering a vaccine that was only tested in animals. So I'll call on Dr. Wiseman to tell us what preclinical studies should have been done in order to head this off before it became a safety disaster. Well, we've covered some of the ground, and again, I'd love to hear Dr. Gortler's view on this. Um, you know, we've listed carcin the carcinogenicity study and the genotoxicity studies a, a moment ago, as well as the more, there was limited biodistribution studies that were truncated um, at earlier points. Dr. Lindsay mentioned the lipid nanoparticle distribution study that was truncated at about 48 hours when the levels of the lipid nanoparticles were rising in the ovaries. So those are fundamental studies. Um, I think it's important to know that in a normal clinical development program, as someone's helped develop medical products, it's not uncommon for not all of the preclinical studies to have been completed in the early clinical trial phases. But we're two years into this now. So whatever studies might even conceivably uh, have been sort of uh, delayed, as it were, there's no excuse for that any longer. Um, but, but probably some of the most egregious studies, I think, are, are in the pregnancy and reproductive area. And, and, and I think it's worth, I don't know, I think someone's going to be speaking about that in, in more detail, but I want to highlight um, uh, one thing in particular. The label, to my knowledge, still says something like, I don't have the exact words, something like uh, there's insufficient data to inform as to the risks of the, using the vaccine in pregnancy. Uh, don't quote me the exact words. And yet we all know that the CDC is recommending and strongly recommending, and the FDA is endorsing CDC's recommendation to use this in pregnancy. Um, I, I, I want to point out one thing. One of Pfizer's documents, they said they actually stopped their randomized study in pregnancy, which would have been a very high level of evidence. They stopped their randomized study early. Why? Because the CDC jumped ahead of the gun, made all the recommendations. Everyone started using it in pregnancy. And according to Pfizer, there was not enough enrollment to continue the study. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then one last point on that, on that issue. CDC initiated two studies. Um, uh, after the vaccines were authorized, and in the documentation for those studies, CDC says there is an, uh, despite the fact they've been authorized, there is an urgent need to study this drug in, in, in the safety of this drug in pregnancy. And yet they were conducting this study, not telling people there's an urgent need to, to study the safety, recommending its use. People have been, were denied uh, informed consent. That was that was a part of the study re, uh, uh, protocol. And furthermore, people were likely, in some cases, coerced to take drug in pregnancy because of mandates. So these are the, some of the main issues, Peter. Thank you. Dr. Gorla, Americans have been told the vaccines are safe and effective. You turn on TV, it says the vaccines are safe and effective. HHS, the vaccine manufacturers, are independently advertising the vaccines as being safe and effective. Does safe and effective, does that need to be proven according to the FDA? 
So yes, it does. Um, that's actually, in, in some ways, that's the very crux or the core of what the FDA is supposed to do. Just to give, like, I'll give a little bit of history of what the FDA does. So the FDA, the organization which is today known as the FDA, was established in 1899 um, under the Pure Food and I think it was the Pure Food and Drug Act. Um, if you go back in time, um, there was not necessarily any truth in labeling. Um, and so you'd have these uh, people in New England, these Puritan women who would never dare touch alcohol, uh, but they'd buy their, their vitamin elixir, um, which would be sold, and whatever ingredients they listed on the outside were not truthful, and it would contain alcohol. Sometimes it would contain opium and other things as well. Um, and so we needed truth in, in labeling, and, and that, that, that office was established by Congress. Um, it wasn't until 1938 uh, that the FDA actually said we have to, um, not only should the labeling be correct, but we have to, these drugs have to be safe, 1938. Push forward till 1962, not only did the drugs have to have the labeling correct, not only did they have to be safe, but they had to have efficacy. They had to do what they were saying. They, they had to show an improvement in the condition they wanted to treat. So the historical standard, uh, Peter, to go back was, it goes back to 1938. And that's how important, that's how important the safety of a drug is, is it dates back many, many decades. In something like this, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that when, when they give a blanket univariate recommendation that everybody gets the vaccine and they don't take any any epidemiological considerations of whether it's a child adult or elderly they say everybody just has to take take a vaccine um, they have to consider safety the best way to establish safety is with long-term studies thank you that's what i want to ask how do you establish safety and how could they possibly say this thing is safe? Because there, there's no way they can say these, that they know that over the long term, there's no impact from these vaccines. I mean, how are they able to bypass that? Or how do they bypass that? Well, I think it was through the Emergency Use Act that they, that they did that, and that's deeply problematic. Because just to give an example, let's take a step way back, and let's talk about us as human beings. So, uh, I weigh 180 pounds, my lineage is Polish and French, my last name is German, um, and then Senator, you, you weigh whatever you weigh, your lineage is whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You and I are about 99.9% .9 the same, genetically. However, if you were to take some kind of drug, whatever the drug would be, um, an, an antibiotic, you could take it for a short period of time, it could cure your bacterial infection, and you could, you could emerge perfectly healthy. I could take the exact same drug with a 99.9% .9 the same uh, genetics and die from the very first dose. And so even when, and of course this becomes something which is an even bigger problem when, you come to, when you're dealing with Americans. Everybody who comes to America is, is, is trying to escape from somewhere else. They're coming from somewhere else. And so not only do these drugs have to be tested in long term, they have to be safety tested and efficacy tested in a diverse 
population. The FDA knows this. This is, this is FDA 101. You know, Dr. McCauley, I know you've talked about repeatedly the, the panels that they didn't impanel on this, uh, the, the experts that they ignored. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I've, I've chaired or been on at least two dozen data safety monitoring boards for emerging drugs, some of which were very promising. And the hopefulness of the sponsors is always there. So when we hear, hear the words safe and effective, I think those are words of hope. When you saw that video and you heard the, the hopeful statements that this was going to stop the problem, you could see the enthusiasm on the faces, and I understand that. But safety always comes first. Safety first. We're so concerned about peanut allergies in our country, there's not a single bag of peanuts on any plane flying over the skies right now. We would never force peanut butter into the mouths of every single kid in the United States. Never. We always have concerns over safety. We always have concerns over allergies. It's been reported today in VAERS that there have been thousands of life-threatening reactions, many of them allergic reactions, and yet to this day the military employers are mandating the vaccines irrespective of allergic reactions, which are clear contraindications. Every drug and every vaccine has contraindications that's determined by the doctor and the patient together in that relationship. This program should have had a data safety monitoring board and a critical event committee looking at every single death and hospitalization coming in quickly, making phone calls, figuring out what happened, ascertaining uh, its relationship to the uh, the vaccine assessed on, on the site by the individuals there, that's called the, the site investigators, as well as by an adjudication committee, and then having periodic meetings. And it's my testimony today that this vaccine program would have been stopped February 1st of 2021 because of excess mortality. Um. And as a result, thousands of Americans have died needlessly because of recklessness on the part of our federal agencies. Uh, you know, you mentioned peanuts. You, you, you mentioned a peanut allergy, and I, w I was just reminded of a slightly related story which I'd like to burden everybody with about peanuts. We'll take a break from science for just a moment. So the, the FDA requires at the National Institute of Standards to test the peanut butter we eat for something called aflatoxins, which is a toxin, which is it's a naturally occurring toxin that occurs from decaying vegetable matter. Um, that, uh, but, but if there's too much of it, it, it it's, it's quite toxic. Um, that, that's, that's done through a form of release testing that they do. We don't have that kind of release testing. Not only do we not have it for our, uh, for, for mRNA vaccines, we don't have it for any of the drugs that we're getting from places like China and India as well. At one point several years ago, I started the world's first um, analytical pharmacy. I conceptualized the idea and founded, the, uh, and founded that. I, I was basically doing the job of the FDA. Um, I, I wanted to help have open and give a full disclosure to Americans. Um, of, of what, what, was, what was in their drugs. 
Um, and we didn't, and, and, and we, we don't have the very simple, we, 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 the FDA is not releasing that information about, uh, about this vaccine in, in uh, particular. We don't, we, don't, we don't actually know uh, some of the things that I mentioned before. We don't know the number of lipid nanoparticles per dose. We don't know the number of cells. Um, and, uh, and you'll be very, and pharmacists out there, you'll be very, very disappointed if you look at the package labeling. I'd encourage my pharmacist colleagues to stop buying, stop looking around on Amazon for garbage you don't need. I'd encourage everybody to log out of social media and do some actual reading about this and not get their talking points from mainstream news. Thank you. So, so I, come, I come from manufacturing. I do want you, we've got six minutes left here in this segment. Uh, somebody speak to the complexity of manufacturing this mRNA in billions of doses. and. Again, when we're not really testing for consistency in the lots, I mean, I, I wrote a letter to the FDA about uh, people looking at VAERS, again, an imperfect system, about lot-to-lot -lot variation and a high percentage of the vaccine injuries associated with a small number of lots. I would say I didn't get a very adequate response from that. But can somebody just talk about the basic complexity of trying to produce this, even in a small lot, small batch, versus for billions of people? Anybody want to volunteer? Dr. Malone? Okay, so this was one of the sections we were going to cover earlier. Um, these self-assembling lipid nanoparticles, which is a fancy way of saying they come together naturally to form these particles because the RNA is negatively charged and the fats in the particles are positively charged. And they just associate with each other, self-assemble, they have many, many chemical components. These are very complex pharmaceutical products. And they have aspects like the polyethylene glycol that are designed to be on the particle and then fall off as soon as it gets injected. So very complex products requiring novel manufacturing technologies like microfluidization that have never really been deployed at this scale in the past. They're being manufactured at many, many sites all over the world. There seems to be little um, process or release control. And um, in my response would be to the agency, having received that letter, would be to ask for the data demonstrating that the lots are consistent because the data from how bad is my batch this aggregate that draws from various databases to demonstrate that there is significant variance in the toxicity from lot to lot, such as the lot that I received with my second dose that almost killed me as I developed hypertension with systolic to 230. Um, that there's some reason why some lots are associated with many more deaths and much more disease than others. And so I, my suggestion, uh, um, respectfully, Senator, is in receiving this letter, the response might be, <coughs> show me the data. So, so it won't surprise anybody in the, this audience that the government agency charged with collecting data and providing it transparently to the public doesn't give up their data. Now, David, do you want to speak a little bit to the point I was just asking about manufacturing complexity? Uh, 
Sure. So I want to start off by saying that this is something which could be quite easily characterized by the FDA in an effort for public health transparency. The FDA has uh, the Office of Pharmaceutical Quality, about 1,300 employees out of the 20,000 or so that are at the agency. It's being run by a pharmacist who has the ability and the staff, and the FDA overall has about half of its budget is discretionary, amounting to over $3 billion. This is something they could do quite easily. They could not only characterize the components and release them to the public of, of this vaccine, uh, but they could do it for they could do it for all drugs. They could do it for all of the products that they regulate, uh, which go into human beings. But but for one reason or another, they're uh, they're, they're reticent to do so. I'm of the opinion that all of that stuff should be very prominently published. Likewise, if if there's one company we find overseas that's doing that's producing a drug that's uh, that, that, that isn't meeting the FDA's strictest standards, perhaps they make other products. And then even if one could hypothesize, if, you know, if, if, if one, especially because I, I think somewhere between 80 and 90% of the stuff that comes from all pharmacies in the United States uh, comes from either India or China, with an emphasis on China, if, if maybe, if one were to be a vile dictator, and they wanted to take down a country, that would be one heck of an awful way to do it, is to start adultering the drugs, give, give low uh, mislabeling drugs so they contain toxins. In, in fact, that, that, that analytical pharmacy, which I conceptualized, actually did, started doing exactly that. They started doing, uh, it was the nitrosamines and NDMA found in Valsartan and other ARBs um, as, as well as a Zantac recall. That was something that originated not from the FDA's Office of Pharmaceutical Quality, but from a, a, a private uh, lab on, on a shoestring budget. Part two of our two-part series continues on this coronavirus update.